Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to follow it, the first 10 verses that we're going to look at right to begin with. And the issue for us is, I think, especially if one has been on the way or on the road for some time, is that we can lose sight of those things that are foundational. Last week we had a look again at the unmerited, unmeasured love that God has for us. And just to remind ourselves that that's who we are, intrinsically and at the base level we are loved. And today I'd like to just say a few things about grace. Because I think in a world that is, let's just be kind and say at the moment it feels slightly unbalanced, of God. Um, the church has not always covered itself in glory. And neither have we as individuals, as Christians. And I think you can come to a place where there is a kind of soulless Christianity, which is going through the motions, doing what is uh, required or we think is required of us. And what happens in the end is that it becomes something dead and dull and lifeless, boring. And this is where we come to Paul writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And that's just a, a big way of saying you all messed up. We all messed up horribly. And there's lots of people who continue to do so. All of us also lived amongst them at that time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires, our desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And here's, here's where it really kicks into another gear. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul takes that passage and he says right at the beginning, you guys were helplessly lost and broken. All of you, all of us, he includes himself in the, in the process. And twice in that passage, he drives home this point that says, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. Nothing that you could do. And we 
we acknowledge that and we assent to the fact that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and that there was nothing that we could do. He did it all for us and we live in the good of all of that. But very often that doesn't sink into the very depths of our being because we continue to try to energize ourselves to be loved by God. And you see it in all relationships where people are constantly trying to prove or show or make themselves appealing or better or nicer or whatever it happens to be that they think will make them acceptable. Philip Yancey was, in one of his books, relates a question that Gordon MacDonald asked him. What one thing, what is the one thing that the church has to offer that the world can't get anywhere else? And he goes on to say that you will find people of all stripes helping the poor, doing soup kitchens, building houses for the homeless, um, taking in refugees. But he says, and you know what I'm going to say, he says the one thing that you cannot get anywhere else is grace. It's grace. And we live in a, a world that is essentially graceless most of the time. Because you get what you pay for. And these things are bedded into our psyche. We, 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 we try to make this how we even train our children. You get what you pay for. Or we say, you reap what you sow. In other words, you only get back that which you have given. There's no free lunch. An eye for an eye, etc., etc., etc. But essentially, what we what we are constantly saying over and over in our culture, in our society, and unfortunately in the church, is that if you do this, then you will be okay. If you behave like that, then everybody here will love you. <clears throat> if you look in a certain way, if you speak in a certain way, then you will be in. If not, then you're in trouble. And the scandal, if you like, of the gospel is this, that it doesn't matter what culture, ethnicity, nation, education, it doesn't matter how genius the things that you have done, everybody is on a level playing field. And God's grace and His love and His mercy and His forgiveness is, is for everybody. It's just there. There is no distinction. And that was part of the way in which the early church was so scandalous also, is that Everyone was acceptable, Jew and Gentile. And we would say in our culture, people from the North and the South, people from the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And we won't go into some of the other divides that our society has put there that are really up front and in our face at the moment. You see, the, the reconciliation that comes through Jesus is a reconciliation of all men to each other, all women to each other. Okay. The point is, 
that that is grace. Because I don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, and the person next to you doesn't deserve it. We are all at the same stage. We all receive grace as a gift. <clears throat> By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. What I have is gift. And so Paul says, yes, he boasts in this, but he boasts and he says, at one point in Corinthians, he says, I boast in my weakness because then I am strong. And really what he's saying is, I understand fully this gift that I've been given, that I receive all that I need to be fully who God created me to be. Sheldon van Ockham, I don't know if I said that correctly, but... He said the best argument for Christians is Christians. No, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness, their maturity, their love, their grace. And then he goes on in the same sentence to say the worst advert for Christianity is Christians. When they are sour and dull and lifeless and joyless, and they nitpick, and they are narrow, and self-righteous, and controlling, and bigoted, and all the other stuff that you could list. And yes, all of us continue to struggle with parts of our humanity that are broken, and that we brought into this relationship with Jesus, but the joy is that I am being saved. Paul writes and he says, be being saved. He uses the present active participle in Greek, which is an ongoing thing. He says, we are being saved. It's not finished yet. It only gets finished when everything is consummated at the end. And that's why we need to be reminded over and over again that I'm unconditionally loved. And I can mess up. And I do mess up. Oscar. But I am forgiven constantly. I am received always with love. I experience grace. Beginning of John's Gospel, he wants to make it clear. He writes it in a different way to the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, which is kind of a narrative, a story that unfolds sequentially and shows the life of Jesus teaches what he does. John is more, um, hesitate to say philosophical or theological, but in a sense what he does is he, 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 he draws out the major themes and he enlarges them as he goes along. Right in the beginning of the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Tabernacle is the word in Greek. And I think the message says, um, pitched his tent. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And he adds this, full of grace and truth. When we see Jesus, we see grace and truth in action. And then a few verses on, he says, the Lord was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus.
when we understand grace, we build a, a spirituality that is open, forgiving, free. When we misunderstand grace and we think that we still have to earn our place in the church or with God, then we end up creating a whole new set of laws. We may look down our nose at the Jewish people that Jesus came to, the Pharisees with all their laws. But in the church we have so often just made a different set. And you're either in or out by whether you make up those laws and keep them. Jesus said, there's only one thing you have to do, is that you need to know that you are broken and he's the only one who can fix you. Because essentially our view of God, the way we perceive who God is, shapes how we live, shapes the people we become. And if we do not understand this unconditional love, this rich mercy, this amazing grace, this overwhelming forgiveness. We end up building a spiritual world that is broken. And that's why we come with humility over and over again to ask for forgiveness for the stuff that we mess up. A good spiritual life is one where we humbly receive grace from his hand constantly, where we are confident of his embrace of love, where we know that if we are willing to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have cleansed. And when we live like that, it produces <coughs> It produces fruit. What shows is the, the kind of, uh, it's the terroir, if you're talking about grapes. It's the, it's the soil, the climate that you are growing in. It makes a difference to the way that the grapes are produced. It makes a difference to whether the fruit are juicy and plump and sweet. And it's all down to the fact that we must know where we are where we, where we have our roots. <coughs> There's, I was thinking yesterday of, um, well, I was, I'd read this during the week. This is the two-verse parable that Jesus tells of the kingdom in Matthew 13, verse 44, 45 and 46. And then I thought, that's intriguing. Let me count the words. There are 30 words. 30 words that paint a picture. And I thought, is it possible that I could ever paint a picture in 30 words? Here it goes. It goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You've got the entire story in 30 words. And what Jesus is saying is, if we grasp the kingdom, when the king arrives, he doesn't come with a rod that breaks your back or with a spirit that is controlling and overwhelming. He's not, he's not a dictator. 
He comes with love and peace and patience and joy and kindness and long-suffering, what we call the fruits of the Spirit. That is the way in which God presents himself to us. He forgives. And he looks at each of us in the eye and he says, I forgive you. And you say, yes, but hold on a second. You don't know this or that. He said, I forgive you. There is nothing that you can throw up as a roadblock to say, you can't really forgive me because I'm unforgivable. He says, no, I can do that. His grace is so overwhelming. His gift to us is so um, uh, we keep using superlative when we come to this sort of thing because there is no other way to describe it. Monumental. Sorry? Monumental. Monumental. And what he's saying is that when you grasp what grace is, what love is, what forgiveness is, it's this thing that you've been looking for your whole life. It's this thing that, that actually stops the ache in your soul. And you are willing to throw everything in to have just that one thing. People left everything they had to follow Jesus. They left their possessions. They sacrificed careers, they renounced their past behaviors, and the list goes on and on and on. And they did it with joy because they understood what was standing in front of them was the Father's gift of grace and truth. They had been loved, they knew they were loved, immeasurably, and they didn't have to do anything for it. No hoops to jump through. No payments to be made, nothing required except this to gratefully receive. You don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. And that's what makes it grace. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. He's simply painting a picture of where we were and saying, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not anything that you can do, it's a gift. And we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. His picture is really saying, Everything that is Jesus belongs to you now. In Philippians 3, Paul is uh, coming out of a passage in chapter 2 where he's talked about um, the way in which uh, we are to empty ourselves in the same way Christ has emptied himself. And in chapter 3, in chapter 5, <coughs> chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 and 7, 8, he begins to say, you know, at one stage I thought I was a Pharisee, I was doing this, I was zealous for that, I was, I was, God was getting a good deal, basically, because of the how good I was at what I was doing for him. And then he comes on to say, but whatever was profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
he realized that none of that stuff made him more or less acceptable to God. He was accepted. And he said, essentially, that you get to know that, um, he said, I consider them, for, my, for, for his sake, I consider them rubbish that I want to get in Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul is so gripped by the whole thing of grace after his experience on the road to Damascus that when he starts his letters, almost all of his letters start like this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they nearly all end in exactly the same way. Philippians ends like this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The message puts it this way. Receive and experience the amazing grace of the Master Jesus Christ. Deep, deep within yourself. There, there is something though that you have to do. You have to receive it. You have to open your hands and say, I'm in need of this. You have to acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. And when Jesus in chapter 5 of John's Gospel addresses the woman at the well and he says, why don't you give me a drink? And he, he, he begins a whole series of things and she is progressively undone in the sense of him understanding her very, the very core of her being. He doesn't point the finger at her morality. Essentially what he does is he says, you know what I think? I think you're thirsty. And he goes on in chapter 7 to say, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink from living waters. On the final and climactic day, this is how the message goes of the feast, Jesus took his stand and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Rivers of living water will brim and spill out from the depths of anyone who believes in him. We have to constantly come back and say, We know we haven't. We haven't got the numbers to make on our own. It's only because he forgives us, it's only because of his love and grace, his amazing grace. And we've got to come with humility, understanding who we are. Again, to say, we receive your love. We understand that we are forgiven. And we want to be, again, recipients of your love.